0: Here we are talking as guides about our, our favorite fly. And I can tell you that if I had never guided anybody and I had spent the same number of days in my life on the water without ever guiding anybody, I would probably fish like three flies total.
1: You know, I just want to go up there for the music. I swear this is the greatest the greatest non-eagle version of Seven Bridges Road I've ever heard. It was that good. But anyway.
2: You hit something there that I find a lot of people, when they see someone tightline nymphing, or they may be doing it saying they're tightline nymphing, tightline nymphing is not dragging. It's not just dragging your fly through a current.
1: Three, two, Welcome into Southeastern Fly, wisdom from the guides, fly fishing the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Thanks for stopping by and giving us a listen. Feel free to share this podcast with your friends and your fishing partners. If we can just get you to subscribe to the podcast, you'll know when it comes out because it'll pop up on your phone or, or or however you listen to podcasts. And we're available pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. So today, we are on the road again. It's been almost a year probably since I've, I've gotten in the old white truck and driven back to a, a place that I love, Townsend, Tennessee. Today, we're recording at Little Arrow Outdoor Resort, and we're in their clubhouse, which is really actually pretty nice. There's a projector on the ceiling, and they've got Wi-Fi and heaters, so what more do you need? It's located on the Little River, and it's the very last campground before you head into the park coming out of Townsend. They have uh, RV and pop-ups and tent camping. They have cabins. Tiny homes, airstreams, glamping tents, two story glamping tents. They're upgrading the amenities now. They have a brand new zero entry pool with waterfalls. And the, in the in March they've got food trucks stopping by on the weekends. It's voted number one glamping resort in USA today. So it's a very much improved place over the last time that I came here, which we were just talking and that might have been that was either twenty minutes ago or Six years COVID time. I'm not sure which one that is. But anyway, you can check them out at CampLittleArrow.com. You'll be glad you did. So let's get rolling here. This is a Wisdom from the guides episode. This is round three. And today we're going to be talking about fishing in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. If you've listened to the podcast any you know that I've spent a little bit of time in the park uh, when we lived in Knoxville. But we want to welcome back to Southeastern Fly, the owner of R&R Fly Fishing. She's a longtime guide and excellent angler. She was the guest on Season 1, Episode 6. Let's welcome back to the podcast. Charity Rudder.
2: Thanks, David. I'm happy to be here to talk to you today.
1: She brought along another special guest, our second guest, also the owner of R&R Fly Fishing, a lifelong angler, a longtime guide, fly fishing instructor from way back. He introduced me to my favorite Smoky Mountain dry fly way back when. I'm sure he doesn't remember that. I am sure that he does remember teaching me my first strokes on the oars of a drift boat. Let's welcome into southeastern fly me and rudder. Hey, David, it's great to be here. Thanks for agreeing to do this. I asked him if charity made him come, and he said no. He was he was <laughs> he was gracious enough to say no. <laughs> Both of y'all can be found at rnrflyfishing.com. dot com. Look it up. It's r and
0: dot com, and spell out the and. Thank you. Yeah, just so you know. We were talking about internet stuff earlier, but we've been doing this so long that there wasn't really much of an internet when we started this, (laughs) and if we were aware of what a URL would be one day, we would have chosen a business name with an easier URL. (laughs) Let's
1: start with our questions and how we get there. I've heard some of these questions in the fly shops. I've asked some of these questions in the fly shops. I assure you I have, but... A lot of these questions are coming from our Podcast by Southeastern Fly Facebook group. That group's growing. And I went in and I asked a question, hey, what do y'all want to hear about this year? And the folks in the group, and if, if you want to get in the group, all you have to do is just search fly fishing podcast by southeastern fly on facebook punch the button to get in and then i'll come in and let you in i just really need a picture of fish is really what i'm looking for if you, if you don't fish you're suspect <laughs> trying to get in this group but anyway uh, i asked i said what do y'all want to hear about this year and and the biggest thing that we heard about was tailwaters charity and Eden also have been known to fish a tailwater or two but the second one was freestone streams i really wanted to come back and i really wanted to do wisdom of the guides about the great smoky mountains national park now we did appalachia we did the Appalachian Mountains with Dan and Jimmy back about 4 or 5 months ago or whatever it was and that was a really good episode but it was spread out some in the park some in north georgia some north of here it was really kind of spread out but we didn't really get into the to what i would call the nucleus of dry fly fishing for the east coast folks close to where i live the park is it for for most people so i wanted to do this particular episode on that and I can't think of anybody better than these two sitting right in front of me sharing the microphone today. It's going to be interesting. You're probably going to learn something already just sitting here just shooting the bull and then the other night we were talking on Zoom. I learned quite a bit there. So it's going to be a good episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as we're going to enjoy bringing this to you and we're hoping we're going to answer some of your questions. So here's the way this works is I ask a question and sometimes I answer it. And sometimes Charity will answer it and sometimes Ian will answer it. And sometimes we'll all pipe in and we'll all have something to say about the particular question. And I I told them before, feel free, if you want to jump in and say something, just grab the mic and say it. (laughs) Most of the time, those spontaneous little, hey, I want to say this is a really good little nugget of information that you can use on the water. And really, that's one of the things that these episodes are about. They're about what can I give to that person listening out there, driving to the river in their car, they're on an airplane going somewhere, they might be mowing the yard, who knows what you're doing, but what's that one little nugget that I can get that I can take to the river with me? And that's what we're looking for. We've got about five questions here, four or five questions here that we're going to go ahead and talk about. Charity and I were, were together last, it's been almost two years, you realize that, don't you? yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: it was. I think it was right before I did my first women's camp here at Little Arrow.
1: It was. It sure yeah, was. Yeah, I'm
2: coming in year three.
1: You're doing something else here, and I can't remember. I apologize. I can't remember what it was. You're doing something?
2: So in June, we've reserved some cabins on the river. What we're going to do is we are going to fashion it after the casting challenge that Fly Fishers International does. One of the things that I've always had trouble with a lot of the casting stuff, and it's just a mental thing for me, is that people will go and learn all of these casts up. on a lawn and to be in a contest, but they're not using those casts on the water. So my goal of this event is to teach you these casts that are on this list for some of these certifications and show you how to use them to catch fish. My first goal with people is to teach them how to catch fish. So there's a lot of specific casts that you can use different ways based on the kind of water you're in and the terrain you're standing in. That's my goal with this is it's really going to be casting focused. I would say 90% of our instruction is going to be on the water. Once they learn the cast, then we'll go into the park and they can put them to use.
1: I like that concept and here's why. You're going to learn something you didn't know, probably. Uh, you're probably going to be pretty proficient at it when you leave, but you're also going to, learning that cast, you're going to put it right into action. Well, let's get rolling here. Greg asked, and then Angie kind of followed up in, in a way, so I combined their two questions together. What's the best fly for fishing the Great Smoky Mountains National Park? That's a little broad, so let's go with the best dry fly. This is all opinion, but it also, if you're if you're in the park every day, then you kind of know what, what's a what's a good go-to uh, fly. And that may vary also from season to season and hatch to hatch, size of the bugs. But generally speaking, I think is what we're looking here. So what do you look for once you pick that fly? What do you look for as far as water types goes of fishing those flies? Mostly, I know that there's a ton of different types of water up here. And what techniques do you use more often? So let's start with the fly. I'm going to go second. I know that I say that I'm going first, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go second charity.
2: Okay. She pointed well, right at me because she knew that I had
1: said <laughs> that we're going right by what I said. But as usual, I can't control myself. So. <laughs>
2: Well, so, David, you and I had the same teacher when it came to dry fly fishing <laughs> in the national park, and that's my husband, Ian Rudder. So, um, we may have the same answer. Now, we didn't say so when we talked on the phone the other night, but I actually tell my clients this regularly when we're on the side of the river, putting a fly on, or when I'm talking to somebody. If there was one dry fly only, if I was told I could only use one and nothing else, it would be a parachute, Adams. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> that's it. It's just um, a really basic pattern. It represents a wide variety of silhouettes as far as the bugs we have here. We have a huge diversity of bugs in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So really, I might, I might take his thunder telling this because he might want to tell this story, but I love this story about we have such a diversity of bugs that so much more about getting fish to eat your fly in the Smokies is so much more about the drift than the fly so much so that Ian had a a friend of ours called us years ago and he was wanting to enter a fly tying contest for a fishing magazine that was doing this fly tying contest. And he was like, I'm going to do a Smoky Mountain special fly. What should I add this hackle? Should I do that? Should I do this? Should I make it this color? And Ian's like, you know, you could tie a lima bean on a hook and if you get a good drift, they're going to eat it. (laughs) And so the guy tied a lima bean on a hook and sent it in and quoted Ian, and he won, like, honorable mention in the There contest. we go. Yeah. <laughs> so, Parachute Adams just really has a great silhouette, and the other beauty of the Parachute Adams is it's very visible. And, um, you know, sometimes we'll tie one with an orange post on the top and and most of the time white but that little post on top and I always tell everybody because we talk about wearing subdued colors and nothing bright they're like what's that big white fluff on top of that fly won't the fish doesn't that bother them and I'm like no that's for us (laughs) that's for us they're looking on the underneath side of that so that little white puff is for us so that we can see it moving in the water and see when the fish eat it but It's just a really highly visible fly it sits up nice in a riffle it lays nice on flat water as well and the fish like
1: it i was going to ask you about the riffle part and the flat water part because the parachute atoms the hackle is is laying down horizontally Mm -hmm. do you find that you fish that i'm gonna use air quotes here better in a little more flat water versus choppy water or do you is there some way that you've got it to stay up on top even through some really choppy water.
2: I don't fish a lot of flat water. If I'm looking at flat water, it's like a little eddy on the other side of a big burst of white water. So I just, I use a, a powder floatant once it gets wet, just to help it. That might have more to do with the floatant than how the fly sits. I mean, I feel like it floats better in a little bit of texture than, than flat.
1: That's interesting because I've, I've always felt like a fly with, I guess, vertical apple floats a little higher, floats a little better in that really, Really like really hard riffles.
2: Now I have a different fly that's my favorite for choppy water. Okay, but see, I'm gonna be taking all your answers going first, Ian, because you taught me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's Um, just shaking his head over here. Ian ties a haystack, and his are better than any I've bought in any shop. I have to say, and it's probably the way he does the wing on it. But that fly rides so well in chop and they're a little bit harder to see because they're kind of that elk tan color so they're a little bit harder to see, but if you, you know, if you get your floatant on that wing nice before you cast it into that chop, you can see it and the the wing of it sits up nice and high going through there and the fish love that one too.
1: So the Parachute Adams is your favorite.
2: Parachute Adams for I can do anything in every any and all kinds of water for Parachute Adams.
1: But then this haystack if it's if it's a little bit different situation. So what I'm getting at here is there's really no one real fly. I think if I was able to pick Either one of those flies, I'd say, yeah, I'll use that. But I would really focus on that presentation.
2: Presentation is key.
1: I'm really waiting to get across the microphone from somebody and them go, you know, David, it has nothing to do with presentation. But I can't find anybody <laughs> yet that that's not really that that that's not really saying yeah. It doesn't matter if it's streamers, dry flies, nymphs, whatever. I mean, it's always everybody preaches presentation, but you can't practice presentation in the evenings at home after dark. But you can sure tie some flies, and that's where a lot of things, people kind of get sucked into it, and I don't want to, that sounds wrong, and I'm not meaning it that way. You get into fly tying, and then, sure. you know, if you're like me, I got into it, save, save some money, and that's what I told my wife. <laughs> now I've got a, yeah, no, <laughs> I've got a room full of crap. You know, and I'm going to tie this. And, Ian's oh, nodding. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't work. Oh, well, I'm a, Oh well, then this must work. Cause, mm-hmm. So such and such. set it in a magazine, and I'll go buy the stuff to tie that. Yeah. And I keep coming back kind of the same flies. But, boy, I really focus on presentation.
2: Yeah, I understand. You know, just like our tailwaters here in East Tennessee, I mean, there's a lot of them. They don't have a huge variety of bugs compared to what we have here in the Smoky Mountain right I mean there's there's always something hatching yeah I mean there's just such a a wide variety of bugs and it's wild fish too you know that's that's a big part of presentation you just have to be so careful not to spook the fish before they see your fly you know number one you want them to see your fly before they see you so you know making that first impression it's just like I think I even said that the other night, you know, you, you get one chance to make a first impression S- works the same for trout, especially wild trout. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes a brook trout will be okay with it. <laughs> but
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. They're a little more, they're a little more forgiving at times. Yeah. They're yeah. pretty aggressive. Yeah. Which, we like that too. <laughs> yes. But you know, my fly that I like the best. So I, I rolled into the fly shop down here in Townsend one day. This is a long time ago. Some of you probably weren't even born. Yeah, but I rolled into the fly shop and I was looking for that one fly, you know, that one fly that man I'm just going to go up there and catch a bunch of. Fish. Now I had been up here and caught some fish, but my buddy could catch six or eight to my one, and and he he never held back, which I appreciate. Now I didn't like it too much at the time because I, you know, I I had a VHS tape with some fly fishing on it, and it was. You know, I knew what the heck I was doing, but we rolled in here to Townsend and, and uh, rolled in the fly shop, and I, I and Ian was there, and I said, "Hey, can you? You know, I need I need a fly that really works." You know, and and for whatever reason, he said, "Well, here, try this Thunderhead." And I looked at it; it was about a size 18. You know, maybe 16 or 14. It wasn't quite an 18. It was it was pretty big, though. I thought, okay, well, this looks like something I get at Walmart. But okay, great. I'm you know this dude told me, so I bought three of them, which
0: was a lot of money to me and if i gave you an 18 i must have you must have come off as very proficient <laughs> i wouldn't usually get tell somebody to fish that small a fly unless i knew they could do
1: it it it, it was probably more like a 14 maybe maybe a 12 12 would be pushing it <laughs>
0: you were pretty improficient. proficient yes I, I, yeah i still
1: kind of i kind of <laughs> am still that's why i still like them so anyway we went up and i, I might have caught a fish or two but i really liked that fly but I still couldn't really see it, you know, in the types of water that we just happened to be fishing. So the next time I came in, I bought a size 10. And then the next day, Pat and I went back fishing. So here's here's the story behind this fly for me. You showed it to me. I liked it. I went back and bought a bigger one. And then we went up high to fish for brook trout. And they absolutely, for whatever reason, that day between Pat and I, we caught about 50. It was just And I I don't know if I'd ever caught more than 20 fish in a day. And it was just, they were on and I was on, probably getting some good presentation, but didn't even really know it. I mean, it all came together for me right there. And ever since that day, that's been my favorite fly. And that's why it's my favorite fly. But it just happened to be that things came together. One, you told me about it. Two, it worked a little bit that first day. Three, that first day, I couldn't see it worth a crap, honestly. Um, Still can't see it. So I came back and got a bigger one. and then the fish happened to be on. So that's the way that the Thunderhead came about for me. And then if we go by your, you must be proficient if it was 18, but it was a 12, so I may not have been as good. So I'm up to a 10 now. So that probably tells you about how good <laughs> I, I am uh, at fishing that those flies. But
0: you probably didn't show me your favorite fly, did you? Here we are talking as guides about our our favorite fly. And I can tell you that if I had never guided anybody and I had spent the same number of days in my life on the water without ever guiding anybody, I would probably fish like three flies total. The difference is that I always say that guiding is a lot like being a chef. Every day the, the cupboard's a little bit different. You know, it's it's not the angler's fault. That's, that's, that's on me to figure this out. So some days, You've got filet mignon and fresh asparagus and all kinds of sauces to work with. And some days you got chicken wings and hot sauce and ranch dressing to work with. And it's your job to make this work. If somebody's a great caster and they've got great sight and they know how to mend line, it's going to be easier and we can work with a, a bigger range of flies. And sometimes they're brand new. They're just figuring out how to cast and their cast doesn't always go where they Want it to, so that kind of calls for a different fly. The better you see your fly, the better you will do. And I've always told people that a lot of times it's not how visible the fly was as much as did it go where you thought it went. And I've always pointed out to people that the better a caster they become in regards to accuracy the better their vision gets. If you can drop it in a teacup every time, a size 18 often works better than a size 12. However, if you can't see a size 18, you don't know what's going on. You don't know if you're getting a good drift. You don't know if it's floating or not floating. If they're eating it, you don't, if they grab it and spit it so fast, you don't even got eight. So you want something you can see really well. For me, I would probably fish a number 14 parachute Adams over anything most of the time if it was just a dry fly. But a lot of times if I don't know somebody and we're getting started, I'll kind of put something on maybe a little oversized, a little bushy. Stimulators or a, a great one, especially once you kind of get into May and through the summer because we got a lot of stone flies, And, you know, you're kind of in the, the mix of, of what a fish would be eating. But maybe it's a little big. But if they're doing good and we're getting fish eat it great and if, the, if whoever is doing well I might start kind of sizing it down or move toward that parachute Adams and something that you were kind of going towards there a minute ago David is uh I'm a strong proponent of nothing catches fish like confidence ah yeah you know what you were kind of saying was you were seeing the fly the fish were on it and you started believing and you know you were acting with a lot more authority you were getting a good drift and All that kind of goes together. And it's, this is something I've seen in guiding is if the fish are really kind of giving it away, at least early in the day, people cast better. I mean, they could be their first day on the water and they're looking really good at the end of the day because they feel good about it. You know, they believe they can do it. And I've seen days where I've had people who have been lifelong anglers fished with me for 20 years and we hit a tough day and there'll be an easy cast and a fish eat it kind of out of nowhere, kind of came out of nowhere and they'll just miss it. And, and it's—you'll even notice—they're hardly even mending line anymore. It's just a foregone conclusion. This is not going to work. So just stack the odds in your favors with a fly. Go with something you can see, first and foremost. <laughs> and as you start kind of whittling it down, but that's everybody is that way. You've got your favorite fly. You—you have that one thing that happened it really kind of and i can think back to some stories when in my early times in fly fishing with parachute adams and thunderhead both where i can remember the first time that thing worked i was like whoa that worked (laughs) yeah i am on that yeah Uh, yeah, i've I've found it now i need to go buy everyone
1: in the fly shop so nobody else fishes this That's what I'm going to do whenever I get done today. When I come down off this mountain, I'm going straight by there. And ain't nobody getting another shot at this. <laughs> so let's think back here just a bit about my me going up. I relied on Pat to take me to where the brook trout were. He said, what do you want to fish for? Uh, and I said, I want to fish for brook trout because at that time I'd never caught one. I'd caught some browns here in the park. I caught some rainbows in the park. But we had never gone up enough, really, to, to get into any brookies. Uh, we went up Thunderhead one time, but we didn't catch it. I don't know if there, there may not have been any in there. I'm, now I'm trying to, to think back. Since then, I've been up there, and it's I think I've been up far enough to where I caught some. But back then, it was definitely not. There was nothing up there. So I told him, I said, Pat, I want to go catch a brook trout. I didn't realize how great a day we were going to have. So he said, all right, well, and and his thing was, well, let's meet at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, It it doesn't matter if you were, if we were going to Louisiana, we'd meet at four o'clock in the morning. Or if we were going to the clinch, we would meet at four o'clock in the morning. It didn't matter to him. It was for some reason he was stuck on four, (sighs) which took me a while to figure out that that four, the the hand came around the four twice a day. So he said, uh, meet, we'll meet. I'll I'll stop by and get you at four. I said, okay. And we drove up and we kept driving up and up and up and I, I, I had been up in this area plenty of times. I didn't realize what kind of walk we were going to have where I would have never left the house at, at 8 o'clock in the much morning, much less 4. So I said, you know, what are we doing here? And he said, well, you know, we're going to go a little blue lining today, which I didn't know what the heck that meant. Although I looked at a map, and there's gray lines and blue lines on these couple maps, maps and all that, but I didn't know. You know, I didn't know what they meant. As we're starting to think about that, the smaller lines on, on one of those maps— is a a blue it's blue and there's a lot of blue lines at a lot of different elevations but the further you go up the smaller the water gets and jeff asked the idea of blue lining how does an angler tell which blue line might be better than another blue line is it the size of the line is it the size versus the size of the stream uh which ones would likely hold brook trout that was kind of my question with with Pat, and then how do you view the elevations on there? So we're going to get into this one a little bit deeper, probably than than some than Jeff maybe wanted to know. But I know that Pat had a plan that day because I know I know he, he didn't go to that stream the day before and say this is where I'm taking Dave. Because I kind of just sprung it on him and said, hey, I want to go catch some brook trout. You know, he probably wasn't even really want me to answer the question if I'm honest, because he probably had some places he wanted to go. But that being said, I wanted to go catch brook trout. He pretty much just said, well, I need to go up. And then he probably had some things that he looked at. If I know Pat, he has maps. I'm sure he'd pull one out and said, we're going here. And let me make sure that I can get there still. So, Charity, what do you look for? What do you, what do you think about when you think whenever somebody says, well, I want to go blue lining. What should I look for in blue lining? Let's go blue lining.
2: Ian and I spend a lot of time volunteering with the National Park Service fisheries crew. Uh And we've done projects where we were restoring areas of the stream for brook trout, where we brought them from different parts of the park into larger streams to try to develop that population there for the brook trout. But I would say looking at a map, just looking at a map, it's really hard to tell which of those streams are going to fish the best. You know, Ian, Ian can speak differently to this just because of his... Uh, knowledge of biology and the way he watches water levels and rainfall regularly. <laughs> but I would say, you know, so much of it. That, I mean, I've been I've been on hikes where we were going way back in looking for brook trout, and we thought we saw something move in a little dribble of water that crossed the path. So we pulled our rod out and cast, and darned if there wasn't brook trout right there, right there. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't two feet wide, maybe barely more than a foot wide but there were brook trout swimming in it and that was because there had been more water that year so there was water running across the path that year now the next year there might not have been water running across the path just to look at a map and know I don't think you can I actually posed this question to our fisheries biologist in the national park and they gave me a website and I'll I'll send you the link so that you can share it when you post this it's a it's a national park service maps page and the fisheries biologist spend a lot of time researching those blue lines to find out if our brook trout populations are surviving. You know, are they surviving the high water years? Are they surviving the low water years? And they share all of that information. If they want to share it, they want people to get out and experience it. The The simple answer is you can't just tell by looking by looking at the map, but doing a little bit of research, reaching out to National Park Service, reaching out to people who fish the area often or who live in the area looking at the rainfall that's going to really help you determine how far up you want to go but you know pretty much they're they're in some of the tiniest water you can imagine <laughs> they really are yeah um we have found that fishing some of those tiny streams we find larger fish maybe not as many but Larger ones, because there aren't as many, they don't have near as much competition for food. So they tend to get bigger.
1: We're still talking about brook trout.
2: We're still talking about brook trout. Because when you're, when you're up in that blue line stuff, that's really what you're getting into right. here in the National Park. That's, you know, they, they survive the harshest cold and they, they thrive in the cold. And they can live in that teeny tiny water <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where a lot of the fish require um, more. You know, they require more oxygen, more depth. And the brook trout are really, they're made for it. That's uh. That's what I would say is that the short answer is I don't think you can tell by just looking at a map. There's a lot of other factors you really have to take in and look at that might be different this year from last year. And it might change again next year based on what the weather's been doing as far as rainfall or drought or pollution. I mean, you know, a lot of those little bitty streams are more affected by the pollution in the air. The The National Park keeps a really good record of that as well. They do a lot of water sampling, checking the water quality year-round. And they have years of that research combined to know, based on what it did 10 years ago, it followed this pattern. So this is the kind of pattern we're looking at for our populations and if they're going to survive there or not.
1: So there are a lot of resources available there. But if you've got a phone a friend somewhere, that's going to help about as much as anything. I was up there on Tuesday. And it was pretty good. Right. Well, what's that compared to though? If they could compare it to this time last year, yeah, that's that's even better.
2: An experience that we've had that I always recommend to people: if you ever get the opportunity to go spend a day on the river with the National Park Fisheries Biologist, I highly recommend it. You know, it's going to be work. Well, I say it's going to be work. We always get in the river and we're like hands-on helping as almost as if we're part of their staff you know we've been doing it for 20 years Ian's been doing it longer than that we love to be in the middle of it and help them because we always we're always learning the environment is ever-changing and with all of the brook trout restoration the national park's been doing over the years it's really cool to be there and see where we're moving one population to another part of the park that didn't have the brook trout population, like Lynn Camp Prong, you know, Sam's Creek. I always say that the brook trout on Sam's Creek were our first babies because that was before we had babies. (laughs) But now we take our kids up Sam's Creek and they catch brook trout in there. And that's just, there's something really special about that.
1: Helping the park lets you see the park in the river through a whole different lens.
2: It does. And if you don't feel confident being out in the river with them, it's cause it's fast paced. It's moving. You're carrying buckets and nets and it is work when you go volunteer. But there's also a lot of work that takes place on the shoreline where they're measuring and weighing and counting and it's really amazing. I remember the first time I ever first time I ever volunteered a day with the fisheries was on Little River in in uh, the National Park. It was near Metcalf Bottoms. They found like 22 species of fish in that small section that we were in. And I was just <laughs> blown away. I thought that was the coolest thing. So you really learn a lot. You see a lot. You just see a totally different side of it.
1: What else? I mean, if, if I'm just, if I'm fairly proficient at fishing and I might move here or I might come here on vacation and I
0: want to do that, help me out there, Ian. What, what do you think? What's your, what's your view of it? This, this is really kind of my, my background Coming into fly fishing because I came into it initially through hiking and backpacking. As as much time as I've spent rowing drift boats, I feel a hundred times more confident back in in virgin forest and tripping over rattlesnakes. In terms of brook trout, if that's if that's your number one idea, start looking for about the three thousand foot mark. If you don't, you know, if you've never been there, look at that. I've I've been sitting here thinking there are a few watersheds in the, in the national park that do not have any brook trout. You know, Forney Creek is a watershed without brook trout 20 miles another. Up till recently, Abrams Creek, there's actually a a restoration going on on Anthony Creek above the campground in Cades Cove. But the other tributaries of Abrams Creek don't have brook trout. You know, there's going to be fish. There's always going to be fish. And depending on where you are, if you're around Deep Creek or Cataloochee, uh, even at that 3,000-foot level, you may have brown trout in the mix. And and for me going to those places, it was always more about the exploration, not so much to say today I'm gonna go catch a brook trout. It was for sort of like, man, let's see what's even up there. And another kind of thought of this is, are you going in from the bottom or are you going from the top? And it's most of the time going from the bottom is how it's done. Whether you're starting at a trailhead at Elkmont or Catalucci Valley or wherever. So you're, it's not a question of you know, are there going to be fish? There there might be some tributaries that come in that kind of spark your imagination of, huh, that's some little water coming in. <laughs> and I'll I'll bet you there are fish in there. It's, it's just how manageable is that water? And if you're coming in from the top, now this starts getting to be like, where do the fish start? And I was listening to charity and I was kind of thinking about a time going down off of Klingman's Dome. You know, the first spot I could actually kind of Get to the water. There was some water dribbling along down below me, and I thought, well, let's see. And man, I could see that bright red fins right there. And I, I was shocked at how nice that fish was. It was probably a measurable eight and a half or nine inches, not that far from the top of the mountain. And I always like to remind people that not only are these pretty, you know, it's sterile is overstating it, but it's not fertile water. And it's a rough life for that fish. But if you kind of think about the amount of water that that fish lives in, and you compare it to the ocean off the coast of South Africa where all the white sharks are, this is a bigger, meaner fish for his environment than the (laughs) white shark is crushing seals. And on a few occasions caught these fish where they have a salamander in their throat and the salamander was bigger in relation to that brook trout than those seals are relative to those white sharks. So when you kind of take them in their environment, it starts to boggle your mind a little bit. But another thing to consider, and I would say this is very important is uh, if, if this isn't something you're real familiar with, you want to try it, do it with somebody else because this is full contact fly fishing this is pads helmets you know it is (laughs) steep terrain it's slippery and a lot of cases particularly even if you're on a trail you're not to be right next to it so you know you slip off a rock and twist an ankle it's going to get real serious real fast you know I always kind of have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when I'm in the west and I've got good friends who guide in the west and you know they like to talk about their grizzly bears and you know the big fish and the drift boat and all that, and you know not one of those guys has ever tripped over a rattlesnake right on the creek, and that's about an annual thing for me now. And you know, plus just the the there are house size boulders that you kind of have to negotiate. So you know, be prepared for that. Take it at your own pace because it, it can be a very physical experience. Let me just say something about those folks out west there's one thing
1: that they don't have to worry about like the colorado area they don't have to worry about too much uh montana they don't have to worry about a tree that's rotten that's going to fall on your head
0: yeah and i tell you what that's just the other day i was hiking with my son and we were like looking at trees that have fallen just in the past month and and you know that's the thing is the trees are so <laughs> so big here uh, that w- if you do not want to go if it's one of those really high wind days if they're talking about being high winds it's dangerous yeah we'll we'll cancel days based on wind at times actually i was I was just thinking of another thing in terms of walking up there and where do brook trout start where do they not they're primarily an animal of virgin forests or old growth forests and at least here you know Charity had a resource, you could find a thing that the park puts out. But there's a lot of national forests uh, around the park where there's not quite as much of a resource. If you can get in a, a book and or Google it, whatever, and see what a hemlock tree looks like. Uh-huh. If you can look and see what a hemlock is. If you see large hemlocks, and I mean big, I don't mean 30 foot tall, but I mean like the 100, 150, 200 foot tall hemlocks that are three people couldn't wrap their arms around. That is old-growth forest because those are slow-growing trees. They may be dead, if you can figure out what they look like by their bark, because a lot of them have died recently due to invasive insect. But if they just died in the past year or 10 years, that's still old-growth forest. And uh, so that's usually a place where you might have some rainbow trout that have kind of gotten up in there, but you will still have brook trout. So that's something to look for is hemlocks, large hemlocks. That's a
1: nugget right there. Yeah. <laughs> so two nuggets one we've got a, a a website over here that's going to help us understand it and then when you get there start getting there look and see what a hemlock looks like that's that's
0: so true by the way well you know there's a lot of places in the park where the brook trout are and there's a waterfall barrier but there's a lot of streams where there's not and man i'm, I'm starting to get off in the weeds here but rainbows didn't necessarily out compete brook trout so much as they were stocked re- repetitively over them when they were you know, when the chips were down. Uh, But those places where it wasn't logged and they were never dislodged, they they just never got kicked out of there. That's where you still find them, even if there's a few rainbows in the mix.
1: So as we talk about those hemlocks and getting up high, the park is also known for great camping. And maybe you want to camp and fish. Now I'm not talking, it's, it's known for great car camping too. So you can both car camp and back, Country camp here. Y'all spend a little bit of time. My understanding is y'all spend a little bit of time camping. The other night we talked about my time at Calderwood You know the crazy guy from Atlanta. The school bus full of hippies up there singing Seven Bridges Road. uh th- That group was. You know you got to kind of got a contact high from there. Uh, we were four campsites down, and my buddy was like, "I'd go up there," but you know they're smoking. They're smoking up there, and I'm like, yeah, "I'm feeling it right here." You know I just want to go up there for the music. I swear this is the greatest. The greatest non eagle version of seven bridges road i've ever heard it was that good but anyway angie wants to know what about hiking in and camping what do you do to prepare what are some of the good rules of thumb to remember that's a good one and what have you forgotten to take that you wish the heck you'd have remembered so ian i'm gonna bounce over to you first uh, and then, Charity, we'll, let, we'll talk back through it with you as well because I'm sure that one person's view to another, these questions really are totally different.
0: It's it's always been a little bit of a issue for me because one of the reasons, in my mind, why you go do that is to have the most isolation possible. But when you go solo, there's a lot more just for yourself. It's easier if you have two or three people because... One person can kind of carry the food. One person can carry the cooking equipment. And one person can carry, you know, the tarp or whatever. And if you're by yourself, you're really kind of down to being a mega pack mule or you're, you're really kind of trying to skimp on something. Right. And like, for instance, I'll go without a tarp. You got to be careful. You don't have to have a tarp, but you're going to be sitting in the rain. It's, it's just a daily thing. It is a rainforest. You need that tarp too to keep that boom box dry, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you haven't done much backpacking, have you? There, there are, just, just to kind of take it back a few steps, if you're in the national park, there are uh, spots where you do your backcountry camping. You, uh, and, and now with the internet, everything is by reservation, and that is such that they can not only track it uh, to make sure our place isn't getting overused. But you can also kind of see if anybody else is camping there or not. Each site, based on its size, is rated for however many people. It's, it's allowed to have up to maybe 20 people in that campsite per day, or maybe only six. You know, you might not have it all to yourself. Don't expect everybody to be fishing, though. That's, that's kind of a rare thing. You can do that and kind of get an idea of, of where it is you're going the further back, the fewer people you can expect at any time. And then when you're fishing, you know, be sure you've kind of got the basics there. Be sure you've got your rod and reel packed. You got some flies packed. You got some floating kind of a you know real humdinger you get up there and you know like you didn't really think little things like <laughs> tippet and floating were that big a deal till you decided you're going to be gone for three days and you don't have any floating or tippet it. it's it's a lot of little things that'll kind of make it or break it for you you make a checklist you should do you i, I know yeah. you did yeah i just realized on her to do that why would i do that i do it i knew it okay go ahead. <laughs> um. You know, and and then one of the things uh, you you kind of have to live this to to see the benefit. But all these backcountry sites in the park have the bear cables. They're they're known as bear cables. Kind of looks like this trapeze setup, but it's easy to hoist your stuff up on that. If you're in the national forest, you can camp wherever you want in the national forest, um, but you don't have any of these bear cables. In our experience, we I have never had a bear issue. Uh, backpacking. I've I've had bears come around when I've been there, but I've never had any issues with them trying to get in my stuff. They will. But having said that, something's going to try to get into your stuff, and most of the time I've found it's mice. Yes. And I'll tell you right now they run right up those cables. And this sounds like a very oddball recommendation, but when you put the stuff up on the cable, unzip every pocket because the mouse is going to get in there and he's going to chew a hole through your backpack. So just let him get in there, have your stuff bound up as best you can. But I've got backpacks with holes chewed through them um, right next to the zipper. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) And usually what they do is they chew through your your food and they take a bite out of everything you've got. They chew a little hole, you know, so you kind of end up, well, let's cut the edge off of of tomorrow's dinner. (laughs) (laughs) and you don't have bear problems you have mouse problems somebody told me to
1: take the top of like a can of green beans when you cut the top off of it and then cut a slit in it drill a hole in it and put it around the cable so they can't like get around it
0: well they've got like little things like that but they hop right over it yeah they've got they've got things on there that I'm, i'm sure probably keep raccoons and you know bears and stuff but I, those mice they just sit around during the day and go okay i remember
1: that dude that brought this remember how we got, yeah i remember okay well tonight i'll see you back here at 11 45 how about how about one o'clock i'm gonna you know i'm gonna try to take it out okay we'll get in and thin okay
0: and that's generally honestly how how the bears kind of get attenuated to stuff is you'll have somebody that's pretty sloppy at one of these sites and leaves some food around then it it starts showing up and when so here's what's happened is if you're there and a bear comes right in well he's he's had an experience with that before so what they end up having to do is they have to close those campsites down to where people have been gone long enough and there's nothing there that they just kind of have to start looking for food somewhere else right they move off that's usually most of your bear problems happen April and May when the bears are out and the food has not really grown up much
1: good information there so don't forget to tip it the flies so you've
0: forgotten flies before I assume oh yeah that's you know actually that kind of goes back to why I keep flies in my hat and everywhere else it's like you always got something i'm not gonna go without that's right just the other day i was putting something in a day pack and i was like oh here's some flies and i was about, I was like nope leave them there because you're yeah. gonna want those so that's the whole reason i put them there was i always have extras in every little thing I, I think
1: i'm just fishing out of fly cups these days or whatever i happen to have yeah i don't i've got all these nice fly boxes and I love them, and they're full. But I don't know if I open them more than two or three times a year. I'm always looking for, like, right, that's not the cup. That's, not, that's the cup. Oh, yeah, these are, you know, these are the flies. <laughs> yeah, this is the, the one. I've got
0: the cup that's got all the little sparkly beads, and this one's got all the good dry flies, yeah. and this one's got kind of the dropper setups in it. Yeah, and it's just, just like what you said. I tie them, scrape them off, put them in that cup, put them in my pocket, and head out. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, Charity, I know you've got a different take on it. So half the time, are you really trying to keep him up to speed and all that? and make no, sure No, got... I do
0: not
2: pack for him. Oh. <laughs> I pack for the general use. Of course, we have two children that always go camping with us. And Ian didn't mention this. I was kind of surprised. The hammocks have really changed backcountry camping. We have some hammocks. We use like a, a little um, pad, like a little camp pad. So you can put a camp pad and a hammock and make sure you get... Get the little tarp thing that goes over top of your hammock so that you can keep your bed dry. I would say the number one thing is to do something to keep stuff dry because even when it's not raining, it's wet here. It's a rainforest. Things stay wet. Things stay moist. That's why it's so green year-round. That's why we have beautiful moss everywhere. Something's always damp. Even if it's not raining, you're going to wake up in the morning and things are going to be damp all around you. If you don't have them covered, if you don't have things sealed up, they will be wet that means your socks. That means if you want dry clothes after being in the river all day, that means your sleeping bag, all of those things. So I would say the number one thing is figure out a way to keep your stuff dry. If it's a, if it's an easy tarp, don't forget to bring ropes. You know, we've done that before. We got this great tarp we had already. And it's like, well, what are we going to hang it up with? There's one little lesson learned. Um, a rain jacket, you know, that, that applies pretty much to everything here as we sit outside and look at the rain falling right now you know you can you can leave your car and have your backpack and your lunch and plan to be gone all day hiking a trail and fishing and the sun is shining and you're sweating and it's hot and you get as far as you can be from your car and the sky opens up if you don't have a rain jacket in that backpack you're just soaked and it's really hard especially when you're camping staying out in the woods overnight it's really hard to get warm if you're wet. I would say number one thing is figure out a way to keep some things dry, whether it's a tarp, whether it's some kind of big trash bag you put over your backpack while you're carrying it, whatever. Keep things dry so that you stay warm.
1: Totally agree.
2: It's going to be a lot more comfortable. You know, for me, especially when we have the kids, my son, our youngest is 11, and it's just been in the last year that I've quit carrying a gallon size Ziploc bag with a change of clothes in it in my backpack every time we go up the river (laughs) with him because he's a he's a water boy he's polar bear it's february if the sun is shining he wants to go swimming (laughs) you know and he and he loves it but then when he's done then he's cold so we got to have dry stuff for him so ziploc baggies are wonderful to roll up a change of clothes and seal them up and stick them in the bottom of your pack or bottom of your sleeping bag whatever
1: Boy, I agree with that.
2: We use Ziploc baggies a lot, and we re you know when we use them for camping stuff, we just leave them in our backpacks and just reuse them till they get holes in them. You know, they don't have to be a one-use trash kind of thing. We we try to use them and just leave them you know in the backpack or in the back of the truck, and you continue to use them till they fall apart kind of thing.
0: Yeah, they don't even have to be completely watertight to keep stuff dry. In the rain.
1: I've been up here probably hundreds of times. Nothing like y'all are in. Y'all are in it daily during certainly during certain parts of the year. You're in it daily. I can't think of a time where I went for more than two or three days that it didn't rain like crazy for 30 minutes
2: yeah it just does we're a rainforest
1: (laughs) you know it's almost like Florida something rolls in it gets everything wet and then it rolls out and it may be a great evening but
2: well and even just a dry place to sit you know having some kind of little tarp that covers stuff keeps the dew off of stuff overnight so you have a dry place to sit down and Put your boots on or cook your meal or change your clothes, whatever. makes a big difference.
1: Take somebody with you that you like. <laughs> don't take somebody with you that, they're, oh, Johnny's kind of on my nerves, but, hey, we're going camping for four days in the Smokies and we're going to the backcountry. Don't do that because yeah. Johnny ain't going to get no better. <laughs> I assure you of that. Anyway, okay, so good good answers. Angie, I hope you got something out of that. I got a couple things, the, the, the Ziploc bags and the dry clothes. There's nothing worse than putting on a wet shirt. I don't know why that just, ugh. It grosses me out just a little bit. I don't like that. So if you're camping in the backcountry, the chances are you're going to get a real good opportunity. Not that there's not opportunity in the low, lower parts of the park, but there's a really good opportunity that you're going to high-stake. Or tight line nymphing so let's go through some of the uh, evolution of the name here so for us it was high sticking but now you got you got tight line nymphing okay that's a, that's I've heard that one before now you got euro nymphing so still high sticking in my mind Tenkara, different a little bit different take but basically the same all of these are known as high sticking so it, it, it is a, a, an effective way to catch mountain trout charity probably the in my mind it's the way that's probably it. Uh, you just, there's a little bit different techniques that you can use, but it's still within high sticking. And it's been talked about in many books. And I think, Ian, you, you probably wrote some in, in some of the books that you've written about it. Uh, because that's that's kind of your bread and butter up here. It can it can be some of the most versatile fishing. You can fish dry flies, wet flies, nymphs. You can do a lot of different things. And and I guess the the most important thing that I've learned is... You don't have to have out a whole bunch of fly line to do this. Matter of fact, 6, 8, 10, 12 inches, whatever, 2 foot, you start getting past that too far and you start getting into drag problems and line management problems. And then comes presentation problems and then your confidence is busted. So what are some of the things? What are three good tips? I thought this was a good question from Vernon. What are three good tips for tight line nymphing? You give me three, Charity, and then Ian, you give me three. Feel free to talk about them and explain it.
2: You hit something there that I find a lot of people, when they see someone tight line nymphing or they may be doing it saying they're tight line nymphing, tight line nymphing is not dragging. It's not just dragging your fly through a current. It's not. There's a lot to it. You're, what you're doing when you're tight line nymphing is you're really letting the water move your fly, which is what we do most of the time anyway. But I would say, you know, my one, two, three is um, keep, your, keep your cast short, keep your line short, which for me, it's almost like you have to show somebody this for it to really make sense. Keeping the line short so that you're not pointing your rod tip up high. You're holding your rod tip actually very close to the surface of the water, so you don't have a lot of line out, which for me personally, I feel like that puts me in more touch with my fly and what's happening. You know, if there's a, if there's a swirl underneath, you know, I feel that movement in the line. Which goes to my uh, next tip is move with it. If you're tight lining, you have to move with it. Tight lining isn't just throwing it out there, holding your rod up and letting the water drag it around. Move your arm, move your rod tip follow what the water is doing where it's moving that line around, whether it's a dry fly on the surface or whether you're fishing two big, deep, heavy nymphs and some split shot. Either way, move with it. Don't just hold it tight because then it's going to drag and it's going to be unnatural. And if it drags, it usually pushes it to the surface of the water and you kind of defeat the purpose. If you're fishing nymphs, you know, you want them to sink. You want them to be sucked down into that deepest slot that you're trying to get down into. We do that a lot in the cold months. When the fish aren't really moving a lot, they're more lethargic. Kind of have to bounce it off their nose sometimes to get them to eat it. So I would say keep it short, move with it, and use use your reach. You know, reach your arm out. That adds. You know, you think about the length of your arm. You know, your arms on average, you know, two to two to three feet long. <laughs> Use your reach, move with it, and keep your line short would be my three. And and all of that is, again, back to presentation. Even when you're tightline nymphing, your presentation has to be good. Because if you just let the water pull it and drag it, a fish might grab it. The first time it drags, they might think, oop, that's gonna get away or that's something getting sucked to the surface. But presentation is still very important when you're tightlining. I feel like keeping my keeping my rod tip low instead of up at an angle, keeping my rod tip low. Lots of times if I'm tight lining, I'm usually reaching over a faster current to a slot or to something slower. Um, When I just imagine it, you know, I'm pointing across with that rod tip instead of up towards the trees with it up towards the sky. I'm more pointing across and using my arm and that rod tip to direct it and then just moving it with it as the water moves if it pulls away I reach a little further across if it comes back towards me I lift it a little bit so
1: so more of a horizontal rod tip to maybe even down a little bit
2: more more yeah just parallel to the water keeping your rod and your arm parallel instead of at that 45 angle that is typical.
1: I think I started out at the forty-five because I had a whole bunch of line out there, and at the end of the day, my arm fell like okay? it's going to fall off.
2: Well, and it's a harder hook set too. If you've got it up high, um, you know, I, I feel like you're in closer contact with that fly, and I guess um, I'm thinking tight line nymphing. But you know, you're in closer contact with that fly, so you feel. Every little bump. If you've got your line, you know, keeping keeping the line under your fingers while you're reaching out there. Lots of times you're gonna feel that little bump or you're gonna see that little jump in your line doing
1: it. And you're watching the line.
2: You're watching the line, you know. You can do it with the indicator too. You can tight line with the indicator, you can tight line with a with a dry dropper. I mean, it's all about, you know, just getting that tight drift where you're not having to mend the line and it's usually a shorter cast, but sometimes reaching over More swift water is where I would use it
1: the most. That brings back a lot of memories, too. I know now I know I need to get back in the park. You lose something not coming up here. I proved that to myself the last time I came and fished. Well, number one, the logs that I used to just walk across, I'm a little more, "Eh, maybe I'll go down there and cross instead of crossing this (laughs) log here, you know, or some big old boulders right there, you know, maybe I'll go down below that or up above that. But the techniques, it takes a minute for those to come back. Not that I was ever great at it, because I really wasn't, but I was better then than I am now because I don't have that repetition. I don't have that use over and over and over.
2: Just getting in there and doing it,
1: yeah. Uh, Hopefully she didn't steal all your thunder.
0: No, no, I've been sitting here thinking about it, and you you said three things, and I don't know if I'm going to have two things in super in-depth or stretching to five, I don't know. (laughs) But I I can tell you and I are on the, the same wavelength, with with high sticking versus euro or or whatever you want to call it. I'm always so into the the evolution of these things and where things came from and how somebody used to do it versus now and I guess I'm at the point now where I can kinda like genuinely say, Well, back in my day you know, but when I when I first came into this and was was the guy that was too embarrassed to ask questions in the fly shop and just kinda hung around hoping to pick up little bits of information, you know, trying to figure out what strike indicators were, but back then if you weren't you you weren't sophisticated enough to understand how to use a strike indicator and it was just, you know, those hillbillies that fished without strike indicators and now it's like, oh, these morons that just watch a bobber. Right. And I, I came in because I was too chicken to ask questions and all that and couldn't figure out strike indicators. I, I learned to nymph without and even on, on the clinch I was Tight line nymphing and had that figured out, and then watched somebody at the strike indicator one day and was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what that does! Wow!" So, uh, and then I've you know kind of come and gone back and forth with it and everything. But what you were saying is is so correct that with here uh, in in our streams in the southeast and southern Appalachia, everything you it, you might not necessarily be tight line, but you're at a minimum amount of line and that that's one of the things that we always kind of almost anybody we take fishing we're always like "Nope, nope, nope let's let's use a little less let's and so charity was describing you know you're you're throwing out there you're moving with it and in addition to that you may be slowly stripping some line as well part of that is drift management make sure you don't have some line move off into a rapid Faster water and it starts, put, you know, dragging your fly. So there's that. Also, anybody that's fished here more than a few days has kind of got that thing of they're missing fish. That the fish grab it and spit it so fast. That's one of those things that we've we've become experts at being the, um, you know, the very diplomatic means of I don't think they're not eating it. I I think they're eating it. And it's one of those things, you make a few casts and you catch one right away. And it's like, yeah, see, there's a difference because I'm hooking them and you're not. Part of it is I'm expecting it and you're kind of waiting to see what happens. And I will say to that regard, we go fishing anywhere else. It takes us a little bit to get our timer reset that we're jerking it away from fish, at least with a dry fly. So you struggle in the carp area. You see a carp coming up to eat a,
1: eat a fly you probably want to sit down and make a sandwich and eat about half of it before this thing's ever going to
0: eat so <laughs> but at least with a dry fly one thing that I take this anywhere I dry fly fish and, and I've probably come into this from the, the the stance of being a guide and helping people catch fish and I've only got so much time to make that happen So I'm trying to cut corners as much as I can. And one thing that I found so effective is by using just the minimum amount of line, no matter where you are, you have some free drift. You have free drift, use the free drift. I've often gotten to a a whole thing about everybody's seen that hero caster you go to the fly show and there's those guys doing those hero casts and the one thing that i see is the guide that is not quite as recognized as the hero drift right where we see the fish rising over here and i'm still at a loss why people are casting so far up here and mending their brains out mending 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 mending, mending. and then even then it's starting to drag right as it gets to them especially up here yes So for here, I use this in a drift boat, and this is not really a nymphing setup. Put it three foot in front of them. You know, maybe give it a little flip, but for here, no. (laughs) No flip. Throw it up there. Brace for impact. There we go. Furthermore, by doing that here, this is one of those things where people are often shocked and amazed how many fish can be in a run of water up here. You got some rapids going on, and you've got a long slot. You can drop it about three feet up from the tail out of that slot. Pick off tail end, Charlie. Boom, first cast. Nobody else in that hole knows what happened. You've released that fish. You throw it about three feet. Maybe maybe even make that same drift again. But go no more than two or three feet further. Do it and you can pick them off one at a time going up through there. And again, you're not really doing anything that requires a mend. You're putting it up there, making the reach. You're starting to swing your rod tip and when they hit it, boom ideally you've got maybe six inches of slack between the fly and your rod tip and not only is it easier to set a hook you've got less line to pull through but if you're doing it right and that fish is real aggressive he might even close line himself on the dry flop you're right there and it's the same way for if, if you've got a nymph on there, you know, I've got just enough slack in there. I can see that. But what's interesting is anytime you watch somebody do this, that's really good at it with a nymph, you see it. You can be standing on the bank yep. and you're like, oh, we got one. Yep. And what's so funny is it's it's almost more obvious than with the strike indicator, because depending on where the fly is relative to the end of the, the indicator, It may not move the indicator that much, but boy, you see that whole line straighten up really sharp. If you can sit and watch somebody do that for any length of time, and I've done this before with a friend,
1: she would cast in, she would set the hook. And at first I was like, okay, well, I didn't see anything. But then after about fish number five, I knew it. I knew it when she knew it. And I was standing 20 feet away, probably close to 20 feet away, sitting on a picnic table.
0: Yeah. And you know, this is one of those things where if you only get to come and fish a mountain stream three days of the year. You know, if you want to screw around for an hour with it, with the nymphin, that's great. Just, Just as long as you're having a good time. But if you're in a position where you can do this and really master it, What I've often told people is, if you can catch a fish on a fly, you can't see. There's a fish in there you can't see and a fly you can't see. Well, now it kind of makes whether the fly is a 12 or an 18 kind of a moot point now. Because if you can catch them on something you surely can't see, well, you can really catch them on something you might be able to see. I mean, what's the hang up now? So it really kind of broadens your perspective and opportunities when you do that. But I'm also just for keeping it fun whatever's fun I don't care enjoy it have a good time don't feel like you have to master this to be a cool kid you know (laughs) you know if 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 you're in with the cool kids awesome but I I don't care if you're catching fish and having a good time good for you that doesn't bother me how you do it indicator no indicator
1: I've never been able to make it with the cool kids ever
2: so one thing I just want to add on to what Ian said was when he's talking about the extra line and they think the fish isn't eating it and then they ask us to do it and we hook them typically not always typically what's happening they have more line out they have even if it's just two or three seconds more of their lift to get the line tight makes a difference in that hook set. That's what Ian was saying. Lots of times they'll kind of clothesline themselves, whether you're fishing, you know, the nymph or the dry fly. If your line is tight and there's no slack to lift and they grab it and turn, they're hooked. So lots of times with that, they'll hook themselves. And then it's just up to you to keep it tight, you know. And usually when you're tight lining and the fish eats it, when you lift your rod, you're having to let line out to keep, you know, let, give the fish space to move a little bit. But if you're If you've got it really short and then you're having to lift it to keep it tight once you're there on, sometimes you actually have to let a little line out so that you're not lifting them out of the water. (laughs) Right. So that you can let them swim to land them instead of flipping them up over behind you.
1: Somebody's out there going, well, how small are the fish that you're catching? But you have to remember these are all wild fish. They make a hard living up here.
0: And actually, I'd I'd just like to add a little bit to that. This is kind of a little thing that's come up. And I I really don't even care what river you're on. The size of the fish is not often a sign of your skill. I can think of some of the biggest fish I've had people catch as a guide, and that fish was gonna be caught no matter who threw that thing out there. It was gonna eat it. And I've had fish that I've had people wanna pull their hair out that was six inches, and it looked at everything in the box we had and just wouldn't touch it. But it was was kinda playing. I mean, it wasn't just like up and gone. And, you know, the thing to remember is that they're slow-growing fish. It's not like they they grow just as fast as a tailwater fish and then die. No, we've got fish that are nine years old. I mean, uh, nine inches long that are six years old. This nine-inch fish is as old as a 24-inch fish in the South Holston. Furthermore, at nine inches, he actually has more predator's to have to dodge in his life than a 24-inch fish does. Because they're nine inches, that's not really a a mark of the skill it takes to catch them. Also, another thing I've noticed is people who tend to be uh, more used to a stock fishery and aren't quite as hip to what it takes to catch these fish, they will catch fish here, but they don't tend to catch those smart fish. So they tend to catch 4-inch fish and think that's all that's here, and that's that's not it. And a 9-inch fish is really solid if you've got a, a ruler. Now, I mean, if you catch a 7-inch one say it's 9, I'm not going to get on you. That's fine. You know, a solid, measured 9-inch fish... Is solid. Almost anywhere you go, there's gonna be a few fish crack 10 inches. Beyond 10 inches, it depends on the stream. I'm just gonna tell you right now, uh, you're gonna to have to have a place that's more fertile or has brown trout. And the brown trout reason is that the fish, one of the reasons they don't get big is the water's relatively infertile which means there's not a lot of building blocks for skeletons. That's why the fish gets nine inches and doesn't get bigger. And we think about those uh, streamer eating brown trout, eating sculpins, all this other stuff. They're eating things with skeletons. So they get a calcium boost and that's how they can grow larger. Any stream, Tennessee, North Carolina mountains that has brown trout, there will be one that you will have no idea how it's living in there. That if you caught it, In the clinch, you'd want your picture took with. It would be fish of the month or fish of the year on the clinch. And just kind of going back a little bit, they were doing some uh, research before they changed the brook trout regulations. They opened up a few brook trout streams, let people fish, and they were shocking them annually to see if the fishing was impacting it. And one of the streams had a small brown trout population. And every year in the same pool for three consecutive years, they shocked a 22 inch brown trout out of this little brook trout stream. And uh, I mean, I looked for that fish. I looked. <laughs> I think I know where he was, but I never saw hair of. But, you know, we've caught 14, 15 inch fish in brook trout water. We've caught 20 inch plus ones on bigger waters, but. But they're around. Don't don't be hard on yourself if you don't catch them. We're up there all the time. We don't catch that many ourselves. Even these
1: big browns that we hear about, and I've seen them. I don't see them like someone else might see
0: them. That's up here all the time. It's yeah. just reading the water as much as anything. And occasionally you'll see some fish sitting in that slack stuff, and you can see them. Yeah, I'm not even talking about those. Those <laughs> are <laughs> the sucker hole right there. Yes, and so many people are drawn to that uh, because it looks like the Caney Fork. It looks like the Clinch, but really that's you just can't catch them in that. Stuff here, and I, I'm, I'm not going to say 100% you can't catch them, but if, if we're putting bets down, you know, this is sort of like betting on the 50 to 1 horse versus, you know, the triple crown winner, you're, you're going to get them out of those pockets and slots all the time uh, much faster. And I, I've guided people who have said, you know, I've been fishing up here and I can barely catch them. And right away they're like, "Oh boy, we are not fishing where I was <laughs> <Yeah>. fishing.
1: <laughs> no wonder. I call those low value, high value areas. So like slack water, it looks like the yes. Caney is a low value area up here. The Caney, maybe it's different. The South Holston, maybe it's different. The Watauga, it's probably different, but up here, a lot of those places that you just, yeah, I'm going to throw right, just throw it right there. Throw a little mend in there and we'll drift right by it. And you'll probably catch a fish. Up here, you can see that same water and see a fish in there, and he's waiting on the bus to come by because he ain't looking for your fly. Oh, he saw you when he got out of the car.
0: I always call it high probability, low probability. Yeah, yeah it's like if, if we're walking by and you want to throw in there, do that, but we're not going to set up a, a tent and camp here because this is this is low probability water. And If they're there, they're not there to eat. They're just there kind of hanging out. They're killing time. I don't know what they're doing there, but they're not looking for your fly. That's right. And, well, and the problem is that they see you, and they are so ultra-paranoid compared to fish anywhere else. And you know, we always laugh. Well, you see these videos, these folks in New Zealand and everything, and they'll do something. And I'm like, <laughs> I'd like to see them pull that here because that, those fish have got a better attitude because <laughs> our 6 inches won't go for that. You know, we can read books. We can listen
1: to podcasts, especially the last twenty minutes or so. I think that we've really hit on some key things that somebody could listen to this coming to the Smokies, and I think that if they can if they can get out there and use it, and that's a whole other discussion. That's a whole other conversation of knowing knowing what it is and putting it into action. If, the, if you can do that with just some of these, I mean, if you just latch onto a couple things that you just happen to like out of this conversation, you're going to get a little bit better. And then you, of course you just keep building on it. And somebody out there is going, well, I don't do any of that. And I catch a crap ton of fish in the park and, and good for you. But I bet even that person could, could put some of these things into play and up their, their game just a little bit. But I mean, you, you listen to podcasts, you, you get information from fly shops, from guides, you read books, do all that stuff but Charles wants to know can you tell us a relatively unknown tip not something you can read about anywhere about about fishing in the park and that one's that one's pretty broad
0: one of the things that's really important fishing around here is to be very deliberate and sure of what you're doing we talked earlier about you know confidence is what catches fish and one of the things uh, I always tell people is okay we we've caught something or we missed something or we Heck, maybe we didn't see anything. Time to move. And people are always struck at how fast we move, and it's because you pretty much get a shot at catching them or not. You know, you had your opportunity, and now it's, it's over with. So let's couple that up with that concept of missing all the fish. One of the things that I have found through guiding I don't know that I would have figured this out on my own, just going fishing all the time, but taking people fishing is that one of the reasons why I catch them is I'm aiming to make every cast count. I am going in there with the intention of catching a fish. I'm not going in there with the intention of casting a bunch and mending a bunch and trying to make my cast look like the sage poster or something i'm going there to catch a fish end of story so when i'm just driving up little river road i notice right away how many people are wading out to the tops of their waders and usually casting while they're doing it and what they're doing is they're kind of doing a bunch of stuff all at once they're wading they're wading out beyond the where the fish used to be and they're casting all at once and what you need to do is do one thing at a time really well and don't suck at four things all at once because what's going to happen is you're casting your casting's not going to be any good you're not paying attention to the weight and so you're going to start slipping and sliding and falling which in turn your cast isn't going to go where it should you're going to have a hard time seeing it you're not going to know how about how to mend it so you need to go to where you need to go, whether that's wading, just staying on the bank, heck, stay on the bank longer, walk up further, then get in the water instead of getting in the water and then wading all the way up there. You're kicking up fish. Heck, you might just be kicking up sculpins, but you're kicking up stuff that's like letting everybody know the you know fire alarm's ringing now, something's going, everybody's evacuating. Take every cast and intend for it to do something. You know, one of the things I I arrived at a long time ago is people don't hunt the way people fish. And if you fish the way somebody hunts, you will do better. And what I say by that is people just don't walk through the woods with a rifle, just firing randomly through the woods, hoping to hit a deer. It just, all you're doing is spooking deer. (laughs) You know, you're being dangerous. What you need to do, is pick a spot where you think the fish is by reading the water, decide that's what I need to do then. Okay. What do I need to do to make that work? How does that drift going to work? Is there a, is it going to be a hard cast from here? Is it too far a cast? Is that too close? Maybe I got to get the easy cast. I'm going to be standing on top of the fish, you know, decide what you need to do and make that one cast brace for impact is what I always say. I remember years ago, a guy that I take fishing almost every year, likes to hike in stuff. And there was a, took him to a new spot and it was relatively big water to have brook trout. And he threw in there six consecutive times and missed six consecutive fish. And I said, Steve, stop, stop, stop. And he looked at me and I said, if you throw it in there, are they going to eat it? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, that's why you're missing them. <laughs> I said, you need to have the attitude that they're going to eat it. And I think we know pretty good right now. Something's going to eat it. They're they're on. Make everyone count. And if you've made five really good drifts, to a, you know, I don't mean the whole pool, but that one lie, if you've made five or six really good drifts, it's probably over. You're going to notice over time that the fish that come to it or eat it, it's on the first or second shot, which usually is the first one they saw. And if you stop and think about where a trout lives, where it lays, when that nymph tumbles through there, that dry fly, you know, the mayfly goes over its head, it does it once in that trout's life ever. He does not see that morsel of food ever again. If he comes to your fly and doesn't eat it, he has made peace with the fact He will never see it again. He's not expecting to see it again. If it's a six inch rainbow and you want to catch it, throw back in there. If it's an 18 inch brown trout and you want to catch it, don't throw back in there. Change your fly right now. Go to something that's very similar, but different. And that time of changing the fly will rest it. You'll give him something a little new. Yeah, you've pretty much got a shot to catch a fish. So I want to, I want to go back to something
1: that you said. Okay. You want to be really good at one thing. You don't want to suck at four things. Yes, that, that's a life lesson. I tell that to my son all the time. <laughs> but, but and I, I'm a hundred percent with you, and I know because I've lived it.
0: You know, have you lived it? Yeah. Well, and that's what I always tell people when when I tell you not to do something, it's because I screwed that up enough times now to know. Um, I, I was self taught at this, and you know, I kind of hit that critical mass where things started happening and things started working and. You know, and I am where I am now. Plus, I've seen enough people with me, you know, succeed or not, depending on how things were going.
1: It's, it's a whole different view sitting out watching somebody. But my, my thing that I tell people is, especially people that first start out, they're a little bit nervous anyway. I'm like, dude, you ain't going to do nothing that I ain't already done. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Nothing. There's nothing you can do other it, than
1: jump in the water out of the boat. I haven't done that yet.
0: The cold, hard, sad fact is you're going to have to screw it up to, to get it to work. Once once, you've got it, the screw-ups behind you, now you know that doesn't work, and you've seen what doesn't work, and you can actually identify that and self-diagnose and do something different. And you may do
1: two or three things in a row that don't work, trying to do one thing to make it work. And then the fourth thing may
0: be the thing that, oh, okay, finally, finally I did that right. And you know this from guiding, David, that as, as they say in sports, that's why you play the games, <laughs> because there's a lot of days I thought, well, this was just going to wreck them, and it didn't, and we had to change tactics. Oh, yeah. You know, they were not on the dry fly that day. Or, mm-hmm. why didn't they eat the nymph? What's the problem with that? And then they just start eating the dry fly, and you're like, why did they not eat a nymph? Why? <laughs> there's no reason for them to be rising today, but I'll, we'll
1: take it. So, Charity, I'd say your view is a little bit different on this question and and. Do I need to go over it again, or are you pretty square? No, I mean, it's just
2: just something that you're not going to see just everywhere or read in every book. I would say that the one thing I've experienced over the almost 20 years of guiding people in the park, just about every pullout, and I'll say from the Townsend side, I'll base it on once you get past Metcalf Bottoms, but even some below Metcalf Bottoms, all the way to Cherokee, driving along the waters, just about every pullout on the side of the road there, you can get out and catch fish. Most people don't consider that. Your chances are going to be more likely of sneaking up on fish in a place that not everybody can easily get to, but there's a lot of places where there's pullouts that the people that use them never get in the water. There are so many places, and especially up in those higher elevations up, you know, like towards the chimneys, between the the Chimneys Trail and the Mount Leconte Trailhead and all of those areas up there that are that are up in the higher elevations of the park. And there's even a lot of them, there's a pullout and you can't see the water. But if you get out and step five feet off the highway, you can hear the water. So I would just say, you know, the one thing that you're not necessarily going to read or see everywhere is I would say 90%, roughly 90% of the pullouts that are on the side of the road where you can park a vehicle in the national park are places that you can get out and catch a fish,
1: and that's amazing because you would think that oh well, there's nothing there because everybody's been here.
2: That's right, or it or it looks so small, or it's way down in a hole, or
0: yeah. I always say we just primarily fish the wet spots, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Isn't that about the truth?
2: Yeah. So another thing I'll say that it clearly benefits your chances of catching a fish and your chances of staying safe so that you can walk on up the river to the next spot to fish, is I call it embracing the pause. When you get to the water and you're ready to go fishing, just pause for a second. Look around, and there's so many things you can benefit by just embrace that pause. Look where you're standing. Can you make a cast from that spot? Look where you're standing. Can you make a cast without sticking your rod tip into a tree branch. If you don't make it, if you don't stick your rod tip into a tree branch casting, are you in a position that when you go to set the hook you're not going to stick your rod tip in a tree branch? Can you safely move to a better spot to get your cast to reach where you're wanting to place your fly? Oftentimes people will approach a pool that's, there's waterfalls everywhere in this park, you know, anywhere from Shinhai to 80 feet high, you approach a pool that has a little spillover waterfall at the head of it, oftentimes people step in that pool and try to cast all the way up to the waterfall when most of the time the biggest fish you're going to see in that pool are probably sitting right in that slower edge at the back. And so embracing that pause of stopping to see what's right there in front of you before you step in the water, before you start waving your rod around, look and see, is there something close to me that I might spook? That maybe I need to take two steps back and reposition myself so that I can get a cast on that 18-inch brown trout that's sitting right there or bigger. You know, that's there's been lots of times when I'll be sneaking, sneaking up to the water And I feel like my angler with me is following me. I'll get in a position and pause. And then they'll come like tromping right along (laughs) in front of me. Instead of walking behind the two trees, I just went behind. They come around in front of them. And the biggest fish you see all day goes right by. And you're just like, oh, did you see that?
1: Fish of a lifetime. (laughs) He's
2: like, oh, let's catch him. And I'm like, well, (laughs) he's hiding now. Right? He's well aware of our presence. So I would say those are those are two things that you're probably not going to always see. We try really hard to put information out there that's not just going to tell you where the fish are, but it's going to help you understand how to read that water and catch the fish in those places. So I would say that's one of the things that we really try to help people understand is you you really need to be aware of your surroundings. For many reasons, can you walk there without falling in a deep hole? Can you make your cast without throwing your line immediately in a tree behind you? You know, so taking that pause when you reach the edge of the water to look around and take note of your surroundings is really, really important.
1: I tell you, there's two times that you're going to hook a tree behind you. One is because you don't look around behind you, and your your plain river runs through it, and you just reach up with the back cast that you probably shouldn't make anyway, but you do, and then you get hung in that tree. But the second most, the second biggest percentage of time is when you miss that fish.
2: Yep, yep.
1: Those two times are when you're generally speaking going to get hung in a tree. And I don't know, it's almost 100% chance if you miss a fish up here, you're probably going to get in a tree. <laughs> the is going to be stuck up in a tree somewhere, but definitely the river runs through it thing is the other piece of that.
0: We're always about a horizontal hook set. And and one of the, the reasons is that, it tends to hook a little better than going straight up, but at the same time, when not if, but when you do miss the fish and it goes in a tree, it's generally at eye level, right? And it's not three stories high. Um, when when you miss them, and that's just one of those things you got to live it and breathe it and become a believer. You know the hard way. You'll, you'll you figure it out. It's and there's no shame in hanging them up by any stretch. But learn from it. That's uh
1: yeah. And that's that's one. So do you hook set
0: downstream? I guess kind of to the side because somebody's going to be wherever the that. fish is looking away from. However that works, because you want to set it into the fish, not out of their mouth. As we were talking about the tight line stuff, you're moving. You're not going up, you're moving. So it's just a continuation of that motion as well. Yeah.
1: To
2: add to that, and that's kind of where I was going to, is that making your hook set go the direction the water is moving. Because if you're reaching into an eddy, sometimes that fish might be looking the other way because of the way the swirl of the water is. If your fly comes into them from the nose, you're going to set the hook towards their tail or the direction the the direction the water is moving. Just like talking about taking that pause so that you can see what's around you. If you have to make your cast out in front of your body to make that cast so that your back cast doesn't hit a tree, your hook set is going to have to go the same way as your back cast. So I always, I always tell people that when you're, when you're fishing here, consider that your hook set is going to go the same direction as your back cast. So this is one place where you fish a lot where your rod tip is out in front of you more than it is up over your head. You have to keep it low and under the overhang of the trees. Just keep that in mind. That's that's one thing that you're not going to see everywhere is that your hook set is going to go the same direction as your back cast and your, your rod is going to be more out in front of your body, your rod tip. Is going to be out in front of your vision instead of up beside your head most of the time here
1: two really good answers to a very general question where somebody's really probing on not deep just probing for something to latch on to to make their experience a little better and i would say this so i'm going to answer this one too y'all i would say this i would say don't judge your day by how you did versus somebody else either fishing with them or they were up here a week ago or 10 years ago or it was me catching 50 we were catching we caught 50 brook trout that day That was a very, very rare day. I mean, everything happened to come together. Don't judge your experience on that. Don't judge your experience on an old-timer that fished up here in the late 60s and has their stories to tell or 70s or whatever. Judge it on your experience, you know. And it's not always, well, I'm going to go up there and kill it because we all know that just because you think you're going to go up there and kill it and I'm using it up there in air quotes because it's anywhere. Don't judge your day on what you think it should be. Take it for what it is because you're
0: going to see so much more. We're so about the experience, about the, the place, the wild fish, all the diversity of forest and the animals you might see and wildflowers. I mean, we really live and breathe that. And at the same time, from a guiding perspective, which I always tell people who haven't guided or know that mindset, it is a results-based profession. I often get really puckered up over the course of the day about what we are or aren't catching. Right. And there are so many times where I thought, well, they didn't fall in, you know, we missed (laughs) some fish. It was all right, and in my mind, this was like a really mediocre experience, and I just really wished things turned out better, and as we're taking waiters off and everything, they gushed. It was like one of the top three days of their life. I always kind of have to remember, and there's been times I've taken people. I knew it was difficult because of their physical situation, and I was looking to make it as fun as possible, and you find out later that was the last time somebody went fishing in their life. Yep. Or yeah, you know, so there's so many times that we help people, their child catch their first fish. And in the big scheme, we didn't just you know, slaughter fish. You know, it was a it was a good time and memorable. And if you know, especially if you don't get to be here all the time, just being in that place and seeing that mist on the water in the forest with the light beams shining through. Yeah, it, it's just magical.
1: You talk about that. That's and I'm not going to get all gushy here. And I had really not, I mean, not much to do with this at all, other than it was my boat. My very first client was, uh, and I've probably told this before. And if I have, don't don't move on to the next podcast and don't <laughs> hit pause because we're going to come back around here to something else. But I, I'm going to say this to your your discussion about a good experience. The very first client that I had was a a, a guy that's turned out to be a, a friend. And he brought his father-in-law, and his father-in-law was a double amputee. Larry was his father-in-law's name. James called and said, hey, father-in-law's a double amputee. Can you accommodate that? And I was like, can you help me get him in the boat? You know, if you can help me get him in the boat, he's all mine the rest of the day. and You know, get him to lunch and back and all that. And we we came up with a plan that worked. But And we fished, and Larry was just an outstanding angler. He could sit in the front of that boat and throw streamers like, Better than 90% of the people that could stand in front of the boat and and throw streamers. And he was super productive. When he got a shot, he took it and he got it. He wasn't going through the forest blasting like you're talking Mm -hmm. about. He would pick his spot and catch fish. It was really, I guess it was so early that I was really kind of amazed. I guess I would still be amazed today. It turned out just to be a great day. And James is such a good son-in-law. I mean, Larry started getting sick uh, because he was a little older when we took him. And then He passed. And the next time I saw James was actually in a department store in Murfreesboro. We said our piece about it. He said, I want to tell you something. He said the day before he passed, he brought up that fishing trip about how good it was and how much he appreciated it and how what a day it is. I mean, that. so these days mean something yeah. to everybody. I mean, to me, it was like, wow, that was humbling sure he remembered that and he brought it up with that short of time that was what he wanted to talk about in that he said and james said we talked about it for a while
0: whether you're on a guided trip or guiding people or being guided or just going fishing for yourself just you know you're you're there for that time and that experience, whether it's to share it with nature and the creator or share it with someone you want to spend the day with or just, you know, get away from the phone. <laughs> yeah, take take it for that and and try not to reduce it to too much of a body count. Right. And, you know, you can say, yeah, the guide's telling you, hey, <laughs> you didn't catch many fish, we was still awesome. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> Don't take it like that. But seriously, and um, that that's why we've dedicated our lives to this i think is because it is a it's just very special to us and i think you know david you and i and i know charity sometimes even when people don't mean anything we we kind of get rubbed a little wrong when there's a body count involved because you're like well it was god what about that eagle or the bear <laughs> you remember that
1: like, oh yeah, yeah i think with all this information that y'all spilled out there this is just jam packed with good information that's usable good i want to say thanks to charity and ian rudder you can find them again at randrflyfishing.com. R flyfishing.com Spell out the and. They're right here in Townsend. You're probably five miles from this from the entrance of the Great Smoky Mountains maybe maybe a little bit more than that, but not much. They're up here all the time. I also want to thank our friends at Little Arrow Outdoor Resort. You can find them at camplittlearrow.com. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe if uh, if you get a chance share it with your friends. You just listened to fly fishing the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Thanks for joining us on Southeastern Fly. Thanks, Charity.
2: Thanks so much for having us, David. It was great.
1: This has been awesome. It's been great. It's good to spend time with y'all. I appreciate it. Touch on this just a second, uh, and, and maybe I'll go to Ian on this. Tell me this: so when I first started fishing in the park, I really did. I knew because I was fishing with someone who knew what license I need. And I thought anywhere else in Tennessee to fish for trout, you need a couple licenses. And then we were going to go to North Carolina one day, and I said, like, "Oh no, got to get another license." Money was tight then, so buying another license was like, "Hang on a second, I maybe I don't need to do this with this week." But but tell us. Tell us about the
0: licensing situation because it's a little bit different in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It is, but it's, it's, it's so simple as to be confusing. So all you need is a fishing license. You need to have the most basic fishing license either for Tennessee or North Carolina. The park straddles the state lines and is about equal in both states. So anywhere inside the national park, either state's, Most basic fishing license will work. And even though more than likely you will be trout fishing, you don't have to have trout on your license. If you are uh, getting a temporary Tennessee license or North Carolina, usually you have to get them all or nothing. It's either basic fishing or all species with trout. And if you're going to be fishing in the park and going over to the Tuckasegee or Nantahala, well, you want to get North Carolina with trout. If you're just coming to Gatlinburg and all you plan to do is fish in the national park, you don't need to get all the extra stuff. And it can be confusing, especially looking at a lot of the Tennessee licenses. There's a Gatlinburg license. There's a Teleco Citico Trout Permit. None of that. Just the most basic Tennessee fishing license. And if while you're here, you plan to fish out here at Little Arrow where the state stocks some trout, you'll want to get the All Species if you're fishing in state waters, but just a basic fishing license and you're good. So if you got the basic fishing license from North Carolina or Tennessee and you plan,
1: I think the key here is plan on fishing in the park only. Correct. Don't venture outside of the park running around looking for trout unless Correct. you've got the rest of the the stamps and that sort of thing. But basic license in the park, Tennessee or North Carolina, you're good to go. Correct. Perfect. Correct. I think that answers that question really well. I've been trying to take pictures of the eagles that I've been seeing. I've been seeing a ton of them this year, but, and I'll have the phone right there and I'll have a camera a lot of times. And and by the time I get done going, Hey, wow, look at that eagle. And then looking at it fly over, like, crap, shit, took a picture.
2: Enjoying the moment.
1: Yeah, I was, I am. And, and, and I don't regret that at all. I just, I would love to have that, you know, that picture, you know, the picture I'm talking about where it doesn't have to be scooping a fish out of water, but if it was, that'd be better, (laughs) but and I've seen that actually. I've seen an eagle fly out of a tree and catch a fish that I was headed to that was rising, hmm. and take off with it. I would much rather have that story than I've. I've we floated down there and I threw a dry. Yeah, oh, you, you've caught plenty of fish. Yeah. 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 Well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I got out fish that day. You know, I could have caught it on a dry, but I mean, he caught it without a fly at all. All right. You know, no, who else can say that but an eagle or an osprey or a or a heron? <laughs> but anyway. I want us to st-
0: start again. Take
1: 10.